Candace Bird, and you are listening to Real Indigenous, a place where we discuss uh, everything on the screen and everything in between, all things Real Indigenous, keeping it real. And with me today are my co-hosts, Pakalayevsi, Uvanga Angela, Halitu, Chimichukma. This is Tully. We also have two guests today, our Comanche man from Parts Unknown. Tell us who you are. Hi, I'm Sunrise Tipikani. Uh, I am from Oklahoma City. I'm Comanche enrolled, and I also have some Navajo in me, and I'm told I have some Zuni and some Apache, some Cherokee. She keeps building up. Yeah, but I'm, uh, I work down in Norman sometimes, and I work in Oklahoma City all over the place. And then our special guest... Uh, hey everybody, uh, I'm Joey Clift, uh, comedian, TV writer, enrolled Calitz Indian travel member. Uh, and, uh, look, Sunrise is a special guest too. We're all special guests today. Well, thanks for joining us. We're all riding on a high from watching Prey over the weekend. Uh, Sunrise and I got to see a screening of it in Oklahoma City with the Comanche dub. And it was on the big screen, surrounded by all these other Comanches. It was amazing. Who else has watched it, and where did you watch it? Uh, yeah, I um, I saw the uh, Hollywood premiere in Los Angeles, also in just a room of like native Hollywood types. And uh, yeah, so something I got, I want to, I definitely want to like r- relate to y'all on is, I feel like when I tell non-natives about how prey is, they always say, "Oh, I wish I could have seen it in theaters," and I always try to explain. Seeing this in a room full of native people is nuts because it's just like nonstop. I'm sure the Comanche dub, especially on the Comanche Nation, was just like nonstop applause breaks whenever a native person does something cool, which is the whole movie. There were a lot of chuckles at some some of the things, especially when they met up with the trappers. <laughs> oh, for sure. <laughs> what about you, Tony? Candace, where did you see it? Unfortunately, that was the week I got COVID. Oh. <laughs> I was planning to go up there. <laughs> Worst time ever. <laughs> I was trying no. to find those little uh, orange tootsies to take to get me <laughs> healed. But, <laughs> <laughs> but um, so, yeah, I missed it at the premiere. Everybody I knew, including my own mother, was there, but I wasn't there. And so I had to be the, the sad person watching it on the on the fifth on on hulu i also watched it on hulu but i wasn't sad because well i was with my fiance and we were both just digging it loving it moving with it vibing with it like it was it was a delight i wish i wish i could have seen it in a room full of all the peeps but uh it was also cool just chilling at home so initial thoughts, what are, what are some initial thoughts you guys have? Yeah, I I can't picture a bad way to see this movie. I think that like, I, like there are a few movies where it's like, oh yeah, if I watch this on my phone in, in my car, I would probably have just as good of a time. Uh, initial thoughts. Um, yeah, it was just such an incredible movie. You know, I mean, I think that not only was it a great Predator movie, it was just a great movie. The night representation was all on point. It was just a good time. A couple of y'all know Jane, right? Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Roy does. So tell us a little bit about how she, I, I don't know a lot about her. 
any idea how all this came about? Sunrise, do you have like an inside scoop of that? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. So, um, I mean, Jane, so Jane's Comanche and um, Blackfoot, and she's been a producer. Um, she's produced a variety of different things, um, feature docs, uh, shorts. And uh, when it came time to um, uh, look for somebody who was going to work on this particular film in Comanche, like that was the initial premise um, initiated by the director, writer-director Dan Trachtenberg. Um, they had to figure out who was the person that could be the one that could execute this. So Jane was uh, one of the first calls, in fact, probably the first. Um, and uh, her track record spoke well. I mean, she's... You know, like she's not well known just in film circles, but, you know, she is, you know, works in all sorts of art forms. Um, like she's produced an opera. She's done a lot of uh, beadwork. Of course, she does like a lot of uh, uh, like arena directing sometimes. Right? So she knows a lot of people in very different circles. And um, she uh, helped produce LaDonna Harris. The, the Donna Harris documentary. So I think that sort of put her on the, on the map in terms of specifically Comanche work. Um, so he found her, called her, she got on board, and then she just started making calls immediately. And he was like, we want to do this. And she's like, oh, I know who can do this. Got a call. Uh, we need to do this. Made a call. You know, how do we how do we deal with like bows and arrows from this period? Well, I know who can do it. How do we deal with the beadwork? in this period well i know who could do it so it, it seemed like it was a natural fit for her but yeah i mean the jane is a mover and a shaker and it's quite amazing to me that she is like uh, was one of the first calls on a studio picture right and the fact that the studio was willing to go along with this idea of incorporating the comanches from the beginning now i don't know how um the tribe actually responded i don't like my involvement with this came much later, um, but like I heard that she started by going to the tribe and asking if they wanted to be involved very early. And the tribe, for whatever reason, is hesitant. I mean, we've had various films come through and there's all sorts of uncertainties, particularly about like Quanta Parker films. And there's hesitancy. So I think maybe they were hesitant at first, um, but then got really involved on the back end, especially when it came to the language track. Yeah, so, I mean, it's amazing that Jane also kind of did it all by herself, you know? I mean, we, you know, the other kind of talk that's happening right now is deservedly uh, reservation dogs, you know, and that's well-staffed with a variety of different producers. Um, but I think it was pretty much Jane on her own on this production. And I think that's really commendable. So that's really impressive to me. Well, I, I'll admit, I was a little worried going into it. I didn't know mm -hmm. how, if it would be cringy. Or mm -hmm. amazing because you just never know. Mm -hmm. And so seeing you at the premiere and you you just said every time you watch it, you you like it even more. Mm -hmm. And so it gave me hope. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was really yeah, go, go yeah, go ahead. No, so you know, just that first sequence and you know, mm -hmm. getting up and getting out and seeing the village and working the hides. I mean, mm -hmm. oh my gosh. I was like, this, yeah, this is amazing. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, and like the the clothing that we're looking at, how many people we're looking at, um, the number of teepees that we're looking at, where it's located in the landscape was really amazing to me. 
Um, I had the same reservations going in. I was uncertain. Like I looked at this in a work print version and I was a little worried uh, going in. I was like, well, this is like a, you know, non-native person making this particular film. It's a, it's a male directing a story about a female. And, um, and of course there's all this, like we're completely in the 1700s. So like, there's a lot of delicacy about like what can and should be shown. Um, who's going to complain if it's wrong. And there's going to be a lot of complaints if it's, if, as soon as it goes off the rails and uh, I was a little uncertain in the first scene like it's 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 there's a lot of minute changes happen in the beginning but like when I first watched it I was uncertain about like the plume in her hair it felt a little too modern and I felt like uh, she didn't seem like a Comanche at first to me the wardrobe I wasn't quite sure about and like how she was interacting with uh, the weaponry and there were some sequences that seemed to include um uh, material that the tribe when it was shown to the tribe they were like very um i don't know they did not react well to basically like the head of the tribe like there's an older man that we kind of see like um when dakota's character comes back uh with the cat head he walks in and then there's sort of like this moment of like elation and praise and there was like this whole sequence where like the head of the tribe has these words and he's like talking about like what it means to be a comanche and to be a warrior and that they're going to now make this uh, individual, the war chief and just like his demeanor, his look, his uh, inflections, they did not at all seem like related to a Comanche. It seemed like it was like this guy from New Jersey or something. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, like each time they, there was a new version that's like less and less of that particular character. And they had like a whole storyline related to her relationship to that individual and his family. And the fact that they listened to all of that, you know, like they showed it at the tribe. I don't remember at the beginning of the year, I think, and got more feedback from them. And that was like one of the first things, but yeah, it's uh, every time I see it more and more uh, improvements. Um, and just like the sound design now, the refinement of some of the effects. And then there's like, you know, the perspectives that were given this young woman and like how her story develops and what she learns. I feel like all those things are relatable to me. I feel like they speak specifically toward like the Comanche medicine and what does it mean to be, you know, a person of medicine versus a person of action. And historically, that's been the way that we've thought about leadership is like either a person who handles medicine and story and um, sort of nighttime, or you're an individual that handles war and relationships with others. And uh, you do it in a day with action. The lesson for me was that this young woman convinced our own tribe that you could be both. And that was an amazing thing that kind of refined itself throughout all of the edits. And that I felt like did not occur without Jane, without Comanches really kind of getting their eyes and giving feedback on it. And that's miraculous. It's like the studio movie suddenly is telling me a story about my own people, like a lesson that we should be learning specifically us. I think that's amazing. They yeah. did mention at the screening that the, they had done so much research about the 1700s and that the dog that they had found was the breed that was 
like correct for that time period but the the way they found the dog and i think the article just came out what yesterday day before yesterday about the dog and how they had found it and then had to train it and it was just a mess on set (laughs) it was not ready to be a set dog (laughs) so at the very end when they do all the lululululus that dog like took off like a shot and they couldn't get it to come back. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like that, that sounds like a real dog to me. I feel like that's the dog that should have been in the movie. There is a little bit of like, that's not how a dog would, would probably act. A little too, uh, a little too refined. True res dog. <laughs> <laughs> Show up yeah. when it's convenient yeah. and when there's food. <laughs> but it's not, I mean, it, it's interesting. It's not even a res dog, right? Like there's no res yet. It's like pre-res. <laughs> That's right, true. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Territory dog, I guess. <laughs> yeah, territory uh, dog. Yeah. yeah and, I, wanna... uh, I believe what I heard, heard in the article was that the dog was adopted specifically for this movie. And Amber Midthunder said he was a hot mess, but in a sweet way. <laughs> yeah, I, I heard that they um, some of the notes from executives was like they wanted more of the dog in the movie. And something that Dan Trachtenberg had to tell them was like, we're using every usable frame of this dog. <laughs> there is it's like I, it's like every <laughs> shot that's not this. The dog is like biting something. It's not supposed to be biting or something. <laughs> um, I wanted to talk about something that Sunrise brought up um, with like Jane's involvement. And I, I think that this is something that, uh, like, just working in Hollywood on different productions, I'm really, you know, like, learning and observing is how it's where um, kind of like Indian country and Hollywood kind of bump up against each other and how they're kind of, they kind of move at different speeds. And um, seeing kind of Hollywood learning to move at Indian country speed is really interesting to see. So, um, you know, you mentioned that like Jane, you know, this was really like, uh, you know, so much her show on getting all the Comanche stuff, you know, accurate. And, you know, like, I I think I even read some interviews with her where she talked about like that cradle board that you see a baby on um, in a shot um, kind of halfway through the movie. um, Like, that's like a cradle board that Jane made with her own hands. Like Jane made that cradle board, I think for the Comanche dub, like she literally talked to like her tribe's elders to like get the right pronunciations on these words. And, you know, th- those that that's uh, there's like a specific way to do those asks and specific way to make those things that I feel like Hollywood is just not used to. And it's something that I've just experienced in my own projects of like Hollywood kind of expecting something to be a certain way. And then like, you know, like somebody on a project that I'm working on will try to make that kind of ask and then they'll do it the wrong way. And the elder or whoever will just be like, yeah, I'm not talking to you. And then like a native person has to go in and kind of be like, okay, sorry, that producer doesn't know what they're talking about. Okay. Anyway, you're, you know, like, um, and I think, um, you know, like it it is so cool to see that um, not only did Dan identify that he needed, you know, Comanche producer working on this and somebody, you know, is just like masterful as Jane is, but also like, um, you know, like that the studios like listen to Jane when I'm sure she had this feedback of like, yeah, we got to make sure that, you know, like you mentioned, like Amber Mid Thunder's character's hair is right in the opening scene. We have to make sure that like, you know, the the person in charge for the tribe just feels like they, they would act in that situation. And, you know, I just really, this feels like a movie that like really worked hard to like do right by the Comanche. And it's just, I don't know, it's just like cool to see because I feel like that's something that um, up until recently you just didn't see in Hollywood. Well, I think that it kind of set the bar for killers of the flower moon it's going to be yeah. really 
interesting to see how, because I know that the production company met over and over again with the Osages and had to hammer out a lot of stuff, but Prey works so seamlessly with the Comanche Nation that I hope I hope that Killers is this successful. Yeah, I feel like Prey for me like set the bar. Like like mm-hmm. like any Hollywood movie that is like about native people, you know, starring native characters, especially if it's a period piece, needs to like at least cross the bar of what Prey did. Cuz like what Prey did, you know, like you know, like I a lot of sunrise the stuff that you said about like you know um going over edits with you know like tribal members and like taking it to the Comanche nation it's just like yeah every movie that like has to do with a particular tribe from now on if they don't do that i'm just going to immediately throw it in the trash bin to praise jane some more is that that's the big lesson to learn where the in uh film standards a producer is also the storyteller of 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 a film because they're the ones who always get the Oscars, right? During Oscar night. And so whatever the wisdom that the filmmakers had to bring Jane in as the producer to have an eye on those details, to know exactly what we need and knowing who those people are to, to hire, to bring in, to do the artwork, to do the costumes is a hopefully a lesson that you know, Hollywood learns of how these films should be made. You're going to have to bring in leadership to be that native person in order to be able to tell these stories uh, in lack of a better term, correct. Because, you know, we always get mad when the director's a non-native and like Sunrise says, are not a woman, but to have someone who's guiding these people and these directors who will listen to their producer to be able to make these films and make these right decisions to make these films feel authentic. And I felt that that this was a, a great lesson that we hope that they maintain. Yeah, and then I think it's also commendable to the director because he was, from what I hear, he was allowing Jane to make the decisions on a lot of these things. He was just sort of like, you know, trusting her. It feels like that's something that seems really important. And I don't see that happening all the time. I mean, Killers on the Flower Moon, I know they incorporated a lot of individuals on set that were you know, experts in a certain area, you know, like what something should look like in the cemetery or what something should look like on the wardrobe, maybe somebody's wall. And then a lot of it was based on like historical photos and whatever, but it there was a limit, it seemed like to me. And here that limit did not exist. It's just like, if she spoke up, well, let's figure out a way to handle that. And that mindset of the director going in, it seemed like went, you know, a long distance um, for the benefit of the audience, you know, and that's us. That's, um, and I would imagine anybody who's not native or not Comanche could probably sense the authenticity. It just, uh, and then of course, if they're going to reference it in the future, if it sparks an interest, you know, this is a good starting point because it, it's, it's legitimate. And um, I think that will speak to people who have interest in the work and the film, probably his track record, maybe in the future, I guess. But um, I remember in the past when I would like look up something, you know, like Dances with Wolves, for example, like looking that up, that used to be about, that was supposed to be about us, the Comanches, and it would like switch to a different tribe. And like that immediately, I was like, I don't know about this film now. 
you know, and then like, you know, looking at the time period and like analyzing who did what, I started to like lose a lot of faith and I was like taking me out of the movie and I was just like very disheartened, you know, despite like that being a really pivotal film for so many reasons. And we no longer have to live in this world where like separate like my acceptance of a movie. Yeah, really important. Yeah, yeah, I think that like, yeah, a couple things based on what you said. I think that... um. For me, like for native representation in movies, like the vast majority of movies with native representation up until fairly recently, you know, whenever there's like a native character or something, it's like there's almost always something kind of racist that happens. And you just have to be like, OK, am I going to stop? Am I going to uh, stop and pretend that that didn't happen so I can enjoy the movie? Or am I just going to like be like, oh, now the movie, I hate the movie now. <laughs> And, um, you know, something that, uh, you know, like, I know we've talked a lot about Jane's work on this, but I think that oftentimes up until very recently, um, I feel like what Hollywood would do for Native projects is they would hire like a Native consultant um, who oftentimes was Native, but oftentimes was just like a non-Native college professor who, you know, had a degree in Native whatever. And, you know, usually in those situations, they would like, you know, a week before filming, have the native consultant read the script and basically tell them if it's racist or not. The native consultant would a lot of times say, oh, yes, this is, this is very racist. And the director would just choose not to read that email and make the thing anyway. And I think that, um, you know, what was so great about Prey is that, you know, they gave Jane like a big leadership position in the film. She's a producer on the film and her being um, in a big decision making position on the film like basically created like what was mentioned earlier, which is like a trickle down effect of like, okay, a producer is somebody that you bring on fairly early on. So she's going to be there for conversations about like, you know, uh, costumers to hire, um, you know, cinematographers to hire, like, you know, uh, casting people to bring on, which like, you know, I'm sure like, you know, she probably played a hand in bringing in Mid Thunder Casting, which is just such a great casting company that casts so many of our like native projects. And it's just, if you, if you like empower a native person in a decision-making position like and not just like a consultant that you bring on for two days to read the script and give you like a hopefully you know like a stamp or whatever on it um or like that's what you're hoping for in that situation um you know you're actually giving somebody in early on to like help make the movie with you who can help get all these positions staffed with like the right folks who like know what they're doing and it's like it just creates like a cascade effect to the point of like i think there was even um uh like I believe internship programs where like native folks who like wanted to work in movies could like intern in different departments on prey to get like experience to like start their careers. And like, I think that that's something that you just don't get if you don't have like a native producer who like has a producer level title, who's able to have like a bird's eye view of everything. Yeah. It's interesting. You're bringing up this idea. I think that is very traditional, right? Like that you demonstrate in front of someone who was learning and um, incorporating that into the process. I think in the industry, we have a tendency to act like that exists, that there's an intern or there's a production assistant and they're meant to be learning, but in all practicality in most productions, it's like, there's no time to teach. It's like trial by fire, throw them in the pool and they're gonna have to learn how to swim and there's no teaching. And then it becomes sort of like this possibly, you know, problematic environment of like pressure and like, you know, there's, probably some larger psychological effect after the movie's over like do i really want to continue to work in an environment where they don't support me but this nurturing of people bringing them in was like that's a very traditional integration into the process 
Um, and, you know, part of this also, I think, is in the film itself, like the narrative. Um, me is watching, like, as a relatively middle-aged but still young command ship, still learning about my culture and about my people, seeing them on screen do things that I've read about, like just the way that they kind of build this sort of like uh, the stretcher for the individual that's wounded and they need to take them home. There's like a process and a procedure and I'm like learning what we probably would have done. And that was also sort of like, you know, thinking about who the viewers are that need to be learning something when they walk away from the film. And it feels like this element of like education and nurturing of the culture is embedded in both of those ways, like on set and then in the narrative. I mean, that, you know, I mean, that I guess comes from a lineage of native filmmaking. I mean, like that's part of like the fast runner, or, you know, maybe even farther back to like Moana, perhaps like the original Moana not native filmmaking but you know like it feels like there's some element there of like education and it feels like to me like this is a genre film in many ways it's like a science fiction film obviously um it's to some degree a western with this sort of like stranger coming in and manifest destiny um and it's also like coming of age film now those are all conventional western genres but I think there's a, a, a native genre in here also. I feel like this teaching is part of like a genre. Like there are stories that we tell each other, like an elder telling a story. Sometimes the, the goal of the story is to teach a lesson and perhaps impart knowledge about how to do something. Right. I do remember, you know, my grandparents going through the motions of doing something and it's like part of a story in the process of learning how to do the thing that they're teaching me. And the, the teaching is integrated in this story. And it feels like that's something that's happening here. And that feels like a native genre to me. I don't think we have a word yet. I keep describing it as like elder cinema, which I don't think is quite accurate. But there's like that particular agenda and it requires certain things to happen we have to have actions that we can see process of and we have to see someone that learns and makes mistakes and then refines and it seems like that's something that's happening in this film um as a genre film like that's um really interesting to me but it, you know it's clearly part of jane's um instincts and her perhaps even subconsciously you know like part of the the goal was probably we have to teach people have to have skills, um, but that's ingrained in sort of like this um, DNA of our culture, I think. Well, and were you at the Peter, was it the Peter Bob award where there was a panel on native filmmaking and they were talking about how all of the different native nations seem to be making their films that explain their origin so it, we we all put our origin stories out there and then we all made movies about colonization first contact and then you know started moving into the native trauma the res porn that kind of stuff and i think i mean i think sunrise no were you on that panel no sterling was on that panel but they were saying once we get to the genre films we we've made it We've made yeah. it in Hollywood. We've got genres. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. And I think we're kind of there. I mean, like, you know, you know, we've had the dead 
can't dance, which is, you know, like sort of like a beginning, I feel like of a genre where it's just about genre, right? And the skull crawlers have genre focused content. Uh, this is obviously, now this is really amazing. And I, 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 the fact that this is a science fiction film is incredible, but it's not the only one this year. There's also Slashback, right? The Inuit yes, film yes. that has yet to be distributed. And it's yes. just, you know, it's being described as like the thing, you know? Um, and it's great to watch these young uh, Inuit females fight this alien. And that's all it is. It's not, you know, it's, it's all completely genre. And it's like got an awesome soundtrack that's like all about like hyping up the action. Um, same thing like this particular film. Like you could read all these things into it, but like ultimately you could walk away with just like this great adventure. And that is a great indication of like survival. But now we could just like have fun. Um, but we do need like there's so many other genres, you know. Like, well, and Blood Quantum was the zombie yeah the zombie genre yeah night Ra night raiders totally night raiders night raiders mm -hmm. was sci-fi sci yeah sci-fi yeah it's like post-apocalyptic sci-fi i guess yeah but i want I, I want like you know there's also like trash genre i want just like a romantic comedy yes <laughs> that's what candace and i are like campaigning for we asked our our previous interviewees if they were going to ever make a rom-com and um zero was like I really want to be the Navajo Nora Ephron. <laughs> no, yeah, totally. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Yeah. And I totally want to see like, you know, uh, just like a cop series. It'd be great to see like a Navajo cop procedure, procedural. Well, uh, Dark Winds kind of falls maybe yeah, into maybe. that cop genre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's, a, there's some plot holes in Dark Winds that we're maybe a little more forgiving for. Just because we love Zon. Yeah. Just yeah. because we love Zon. <laughs> Zon and anything. Yeah, one of the things that we did see when we were exploring the genres was romantic comedies were very limited with, with them. And also like children programming is um, very limited because we tried to do a, an episode of this this uh, Real Indigenous where we had kids involved and we were trying to find shows to watch so, there's not that many movies and TV shows for kids. Wait until later so, this year. Spirit Rangers is coming out on Netflix. I'm working on it. It's going to be, I think kids are going to, I think everybody's going to like it. Everybody watch Spirit Rangers when it comes out on Netflix. Well, you, could you tell, I'm trying to segue to that. <laughs> okay. Oh, great, 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 great. I was just like my, we're uh, like, you know, starting to gear up like promotions and stuff like that. And it's very, uh, so my, 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 oh, I got to talk about Spirit Rangers brain turned on. Well, and we we talked about all of the different native writers' rooms that have been popping up with Rutherford Falls, with Reservation Dogs, with Dark Winds, and now Spirit Rangers. They built a native. Oh, there's. Are we shouting out to somebody else? Uh, Molly of Denali. Molly of Denali. I, so I now, feel like yeah, I've, like that. I feel like everybody kind of glosses over that one because it's animated, but like amazing that uh, I feel like that's the first all indigenous writers room i i don't think that they right. molly of denali they they um they're, they're a really great show I, I have a lot of friends in that show I actually i wrote on the the season that's coming out um i think that there it was uh not created by a native person but i think that they it was similar to a price situation where they had a lot of native producers and um brought in a lot of native writers in the first season but it wasn't like an all native writers room 
And then I think that into season two, they um, created a lot of like fellowships and stuff like that to try to boost up, um, you know, uh, like Alaska based playwrights and stuff like that who are indigenous to, um, you know, teach them TV writing. So it's uh, Molly Benali does not have an all native writers room, but I think that that's something they're working toward. And they are doing a lot of really good work to like empower a lot of native folks in the production and give a lot of people opportunities. So like shout out. It's a great show. I also I write on it this season. So I got to they're paying me to say it's good, but it's really good. I would say it even if I was that. A writer on it. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. Around the world, there are a lot of, you know, good children's shows, but it always feels like in comparison to what's offered for, you know, the various age groups, you know, the child to teen is very limited. Right, because like Anna's tent is, you know, sticking with my Arctic circle peeps, Anna's tent in Canada, but it's also for a very young crowd. Molly is for a younger crowd. I don't know, is Spirit Rangers what kind of age range are you aiming for for spirit rangers so spirit rangers is what's called bridge age which is um age four to seven so it's um you know it's like on the younger side of kids but it's um but it definitely deals with um you know more adult themes than you'd see on you know like a like a coco melon or something like that and um you know th that's something that you know like i can't really dive into it um you know too much just we're, we're just starting to get on promotions but um you know, like I, I am really proud of like a lot of the stuff that we tackle with the show. And I think that like it's a show that, um, you know, uh, I think punches above above its age range in terms of how it treats the world. It's also um, it's an executive produced by Chris Nee, who's um, who created Doc McStuffins and a lot of other really genius kids TV shows. And the way that she looks at kids TV is, um, you know, like regardless of what stories you're telling for what, whatever age group, it's still storytelling. And you still want to tell compelling stories that people of any age group can enjoy. And um, like she, the way that she pitches Doc McStuffins, it's like, it's like Cheers, but for kids, you know, and it's like, it, it is kind of that feel of like, it's just an ensemble comedy. That's something that, uh, you know, I feel like is something we definitely brought into the Spirit Rangers writers room. And I think it's a show that, you know, it's like, it's on paper for age four to seven, but I think that kind of of any age can enjoy the show. And how is it working with an all native writers room? Oh, it's, it's li like jumping onto uh, like a Zoom every morning. Of just like other native TV writers is heaven. It's uh, you know, it's it's great because we're you know I feel like we're all you know I'm gonna come up in native Hollywood as a lot of us you know are native folks working in the entertainment industry, so we can kind of share in those experiences. But it's also just like you know I feel like we all you know we're all from different tribes and from different regions, but I feel like we share kind of like a group language that's really nice. You know, like uh, Indigenous Peoples Day, we all took the day off and go and went and ate Indian tacos in a park in Los Angeles, and we have done that as kind of a, you know, a tradition every year. It's like, we just, we just don't do any work on Indigenous People's Day and we go eat Indian tacos in the park. And, um, you know, and it, it's also just, um, I think that oftentimes the trouble when working on, you know, as the only Native in the writer's room working on a show with Native characters is that like, you have to explain so much like Native 101 to people, like what fry bread is, what smudging is, why Native sports mascots are bad, like, and because we're all, you know, native people who are all on the same page on this stuff, we don't necessarily have to do those like base level conversations. We can just dump right into the meat of like, you know, how we feel about different things here, here and there. And it also, I think, gives us um, something that I really love about it is um, because we're a room full of native people on a Zoom every morning, we have a lot of conversations that are just like, yeah, what do we want to like say about like, what what is our like opinion as a room full of native people on this thing? What do we want to say about you know, XYZ topic. And we can kind of like hash out the nuances of it 
with each other instead and like have the conversation together instead of just one person being like, oh, I hope this is okay. So, you know, it's it's really just like, it's probably one of the coolest experiences of my career. I've been working in Hollywood since 2010. And, you know, this has been such a a joy and cool experience. And I really hope that I get to work with rooms full of Native people for the rest of my career because it's so fun to do. Well, it seems to be growing in popularity. Oh, yeah. And I think it's, you know, I think maybe fingers crossed, studios are starting to see some ROI and willing to invest in more Native writer rooms. But I, I want to share a, a quick story. Um, we were in a Spirit Rangers voiceover record when it was announced that Deb Holland was the Secretary of the Interior. And we celebrated like we won the Super Bowl. <laughs> and like, I feel like if it was like a, you know, a non-Native writers room, where I was the only Native in the room, I would like, you know, see that on Twitter. And then I would tell the room like, Oh, Deb Holland's Secretary of the Interior. And then everybody would probably say, who's Deb Holland and what's a Secretary of the Interior? And then I would just like quietly shed a tear of joy to myself. Whereas because it's like an all Native, I mean, we were literally in a voice record, just like a Zoom full of Native people and Native actors, Native, uh, you know, producers, Native, you know, Native writers listening. And so it was just like, oh, all of us like felt the joy of the moment together. And that's just, I don't know, it's just like special as a writer's room, but also just as a life experience to be able to just be surrounded by cool native folks all day, you know? Yeah. It sounds like you're not having to wade through that, that translation exhaustion that often. Yeah. And that, cause that's a real thing. And gosh, that sounds like super refreshing. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. So one of my favorite animations that you have created was the one about the bear. You want to share a little bit about how that came into being? For, oh, it, yeah. Cause it was for comedy central, right? Oh, no. So the, the, those are two different shorts. Oh, okay. So um, the uh, the short that you're talking about is called uh, Telling People You're Native American When You're Not Native is a lot like telling a bear you're a bear when you're not a bear. Very long title. When I named it that, didn't know I was going to have to say that title a lot. And boy, have I learned uh, my lesson. <laughs> but um, I originally made it because I was, um, I was the producer host of the first ever all-Native comedy showcase at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater in Los Angeles, which is a big comedy theater that um, like Saturday Night Live and a lot of late night shows use as kind of a farm team. And, um, you know, I'd been involved at the theater for, you know, years and years, and I'd always wanted to put together like, you know, a nice Native comedy showcase because I knew so many funny Native comedians in LA who, you know, just weren't getting like a ton of opportunities in mainstream spaces. And um, so I produced the show, booked it, put it all together. And then I realized, oh, I'm primarily a writer. I should have something in the show that showcases my writing. So I, um, you know, reached out to a friend of mine, David Kantowitz, who's a really great animator who's worked on, you know, at Midnight, Mad Magazine and a ton of other places. And, um, you know, came to him with this idea. And, um, you know, I wrote the script, hired um, Jason Gracel, who's an amazing, um, I believe, Blackfeet uh, voice actor to provide the voice for it and really just made it to screen at this Upright Assistance Brigade Theater show. And um, it did really well. It like, it, you know, played really well, got laughs in all the right places. So I decided to submit it to the film festival circuit. And then it just really blew up. It was my first time taking a short film through the circuit, got into dozens of festivals, won a bunch of awards. I think it screened at the Native Cinema Showcase in Santa Fe in 2019. I wanted to go to it. I just, you know, uh, that scheduling didn't work out. And then, um, you know, I, I posted it online. It, you know, really blew up. Um, I think it got like, it's got like 2.5 million views between TikTok, Vimeo and all the other different social media accounts. Then I, um, you know, through this process, just working with Comedy Central and talking with them on a couple of other things. And I pitched the idea of like, oh, could I do a short like the bear short, but about native sports mascots? 
And, um, you know, they signed on to that and we released that last year. That was called How to Cope with Your Team Changing Its Native American Mascot, which is just like a PSA for people whose native mascots just changed. And um, we released that in October. That was super fun. And then um, I, I guess this is a this is a scoop. I actually um, just got a grant funding from a group called Pop Culture Collab to make three more shorts, which I'm currently in production on. So excited for the world to see them. Um, they should be coming out, um, you know, at some point this year. We're still... Um, working on producing and stuff like that. But it's basically just like more shorts about just like dumb stuff that we have to deal with as native people. <laughs> That's awesome. I wanted to ask, like, I noticed that you voiced that one, the one about the native vo mascots. And I just wanted to ask you, like, how was your experience, like voicing your own writing material? So that was, I'm, I'm primary, I'm like a writer comedian, but like primarily a writer. So that was something where I sent an early draft of the script to a few friends who were comedy writers and I think one of them suggested that like, oh, you should have a joke about like the person voicing over the short. And then that's why there's the joke about like me wearing the cat suit in that short is somebody said like, oh, like we want to know who who's voicing this short and what's their deal. And um, so I wrote that in and then I was just kind of thinking like, oh, it would be weird if I used a specific for somebody that wasn't me. So then it kind of, you know, entered into this area of like, oh, yeah, why? I mean, I'm a comedian. Why shouldn't I voice it? And, um, you know, Comedy Central was, uh, you know, very completely open to having me do that. We also got um, Janice Meeting and Tyler Clare from Rutherford Falls to provide some other voices. And then John Timothy, who's an amazing voice actor, who um, is also a writer on Ghosts on CBS, who's also native to um, provide another voice for it. And, um, yeah, it was a great experience. And my, my whole my, my kind of backstory is that growing up, I really loved, uh, you know, comedy TV shows because I didn't see any other native comedians on TV at the time. I just didn't think I was allowed to work in comedy. So instead I went to school to be like a small market TV weather guy because they get to like, you know, have weird personalities and crack jokes and stuff like that. So for me to like go from loving comedy, but not thinking that I was even allowed to do comedy to all of a sudden I'm like starring in, you know, a short that I wrote and directed in is being distributed by Comedy Central. It's just like such a cool full circle life moment for me, you know, just as a somebody who didn't even think I could do this as a possibility even 15 years ago, you know? So yeah, I mean, it was a great experience and they were really, um, you know, Comedy Central was very supportive the entire way. They, you know, they they basically were open to kind of all of my pitches and ideas and I'm really proud of how it turned out. Well, good. You should be because I was, I was wondering who's voicing the short as I was, as I was watching it. Cause I know Jason and Jason, of course, he's very talented and he's very polished. And I was, as I was listening to the mascot, I was I was thinking to myself, who who is this? Who is <laughs> voicing this, this? Who's this way less polished? <laughs> no, no, no. It wasn't like not polished or anything. It was just like I feel like this. Is, <laughs> I feel like this is his voice. This is his. This is him. And then sure enough, it was you. And so I was like, oh, that's great. I'm so glad that he's using his voice because I, I read your website. You know, we all did. And so, you know, it's just awesome to hear like you're you're just using your voice to you know, uplift your writing as well. It's very, like, I feel lucky to get to do all this stuff, you know. And you're screening something at, at Indian Market, right? Um, yeah, I have a, a new live action short film that's been going through festivals called uh, My First Native American Boyfriend. Um, it's basically uh, the, the, what it's based on is um, a couple of years ago, I dated a non-Native woman who shook me awake a few months into the relationship with just a look of absolute concern in her eyes at like two in the morning on a Saturday. 
uh, to tell me that when she was five years old, her mom dressed her like Pocahontas from the Disney movie, and she just had to apologize about it. And of course, my response was like, eh, it's fine, go back to bed. It's like, whatever. You know, so I basically took like kind of that moment and other just like weird kind of moments that I feel like me and my friends have had just dating as native people in the 2020s and just put them all in a short film and made fun of them. And um, that stars um, Benny Wayne Sully, who's an amazing um, actor who I believe is, um, I forget which band of Lakota, but he's an amazing Lakota actor. And then it also stars uh, Kylie Brakeman, who's just an amazing um, actress who's doing a lot of really great stuff on Twitter. I think she was um, one of the top 10, um, like best actors of 2021 for like the New York or something. And she's just a very funny comedic actress. And um, yeah, I wrote and directed that. It's my first live action short. Yeah, it's screening at a Native Cinema Showcase at the Santa Fe Indian Market this year, which I'm really excited about. How do we get tickets? Is it a paid entry? Thank you for asking. So uh, entry is free. I think it's, I don't think it's a paid ticket situation. I think it's just a walk in, enjoy the screening type deal. It, I believe you can um, find more information about that. Uh, yeah, so my first Native American boyfriend is uh, screening as part of the Twisted Tales Shorts program, Friday, August 19th at 3 p.m. I believe it's screening at the um, uh, New Mexico History Museum in Santa Fe as part of um, what's called the Native Cinema Showcase, which is a really cool event the National Museum of the American Indian by the Smithsonian puts on. Yeah, it's screening with a ton of other great Native created shorts. And um, I'll be there. I'm doing a Q&A afterwards. So if you want to meet me in person, uh, what a time to do it. Can you talk a little bit about the other festivals that you went to? Like you went to McMinnville and Cinefest? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So um, it's I believe uh, my first Native American boyfriend has gotten into about 40 festivals, which feels wild and is very cool, especially for my first live action short. It's uh, we recently screened it just for laps in um, Montreal, which is a really big comedy festival. We've uh, also screened, I think, um, in I think Santa Fe Film Festival. We screened Phoenix Film Festival. Um, San Diego Film Festival, uh, LA Skins Fest in Los Angeles. You know, I think it's in like a Maori land in New Zealand. Um, it's screened, um, I mean, legit, like all over the world, which has um, been really cool to see. And um, it should be, uh, you know, so definitely see it in Santa Fe. If not, I'm sure it'll be online later this year to check out. Excited, hoping to see it. Yeah, uh, thank you. It sounds, it sounds hysterical. It sounds hilarious. I can't wait to hear it. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. I can't wait for everybody to see it. Any final thoughts on Prey? We kind of wandered away from that conversation. Yeah. Can I go first? Yeah, absolutely. All right. So I just want to talk about one of my favorite moments in Prey with Naru. Okay. There were two favorite moments. One, I just love the relationship between her and her brother. I have a brother. I know what that's like. <laughs> so... Uh, there's that. I love I love this really beautiful relationship uh, between her and her brother and what it winds up being in the arc of that relationship, you know, because I feel like me and my brother, we had, you know, maybe an antagonistic relationship when we were much, much younger. And then as we grew up, there's this my kind of ride or die bond, you know, like, yeah, I, if I were fighting some kind of hideous yeah, alien, I would definitely want his fighting skills beside me because I know he'd have my back and um there's a moment too there's just this very physical thing about Naru that she's always doing I feel like anytime she's on screen on film is I just love the moment where she's making the rope she's you know she's peeling from the the bark and she's making and she's braiding rope she's making rope because I used to be a tour guide in a village that was recreating 1700s uh, trade life like the height of contact trade and so we had to learn what are what are some of the skill sets that we would have used you know like making rope like twining flint napping uh bow making you know um 
and for us, a, a lot of us were basket weaving, you know, and mat making. So I have to say, I loved seeing her being incredibly resourceful and uh, seeing, uh, you know, what is, what is our work? What is our work as native people? You know, because they're constantly, uh, as uh, Johnny J says uh, from uh, a tribe called Geek, a lot of times women's work is overlooked. We know that in a lot of ethno ethnological uh, records, our work is overlooked and it's just, well, that's women's work. You know, that's not as important, but we know, cause we have our, we, we have our passed down oral histories that, you know, our work was, you, our work helped the village go. It helped life. It helped everything go. So there's a balance there. And I just loved seeing that she is incredibly resourceful and she's making this rope to make her weapon more deadly, you know, and that's just something she knows how to do. And I, there's just something about that moment that I, I just seized on and just loved it. I'm curious about uh, Tully. I feel like you've been quiet about your thoughts about prey. Who, me? Yeah. What's, oh. what's going on in your head there? A million different things. A million different things. I'll try to sum it up in a few short words because I could talk all night about prey. Because like like for me, it, um, it was everything that you would want in this type of movie. And I also felt like even if you took the predator out of the movie, you still had a great storyline. And you had and it's just, like you said, it's all these different layers of storylines. You know, it's about a a coming of age. And like Candace said, it's about this love of siblings that even though we kind of shitty to each other, we still love each other. And um, I was talking uh, previously about how like I was wondering why it was why there was not a predator title in it because I, I was like is that because it's Indian is it racist but <laughs> but the reality the prey is our main character right throughout the whole movie people are dismissing her or treating her as a lesser person and they're always trying to do something to hurt her so like you know the 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 native the Comanche guys who beat her up the French guys who had imprisoned her and so even the predator is not really worried about her as a threat instead she there he's like keeps bypassing her going to other seemingly threats but then we realize the reality is that she is you know the ultimate hunter the ultimate warrior because. She walks on those both those places of being the healer as well as the fighter. And so to me, that's the kind of thing that's really beautiful about the story. So I really thought really liked that. And I did like the native element. And my and I always wondered if if uh, you know she was related to the to the Indian guy in the original Predator movie. If that was like a he was a descendant. Billy Soul, I think his name was, if you guys remember that guy. And <laughs> I was like, it'd be badass if that there was a connection with that dude. And then I didn't know this, but in the comic books, there were like native characters who fought with Predator. And it was like a, a, a Dene guy, Enoch Nakai. And it was in like the World War World War II. And then his his grandfather back in the Western times fought with a prey. So there's a built-in of Indian versus Predator kind of storylines that could happen in the future. So I was I'm like, let's let's make sure you guys do that. And also they had the best uh, post-credit sequence because it's on the Hyde Art of what's happening and then we see these more predators coming in and as we you know as we know the gun that she found is the one that we see in predator 2 
And so we're like, oh shit, so something badass is going to happen. And, you know, I can't wait till the, the sequel comes. So, you know, it was just totally hype. And I, like you said, I think it was by having that welcoming Native involvement to make these stories happen, to make it be more quote unquote on authentic is what made it so much more stronger. And then the other thing too, is like uh, at the end, you know, they get a, gave a shout out to Juanita Pataponi. And that's the part that really made me like tear up because, you know, she's our friend, you know, since, you know, way back since we started out. And, and if uh, people don't know about her, she was like a big advocate of, of native filmmakers. And she, you know, ran the Comanche Film Festival. I believe she was also what the Dean of Comanche College. Yes, that's right. She, you know, had a film program in the in Comanche College that Sunrise and myself were a part of, and we've done workshops with her. And to see that, like, you know, really made you feel good because she was also trying to do a Quanta Parker movie. And I believe she was one of the first people who was like helping to get this movie made. Is that correct? That's a good question. I think she did, but I don't really know if that's the case. I don't know. Jane could speak to that. But I'm yeah. sure, I mean, like she's so influential. You know, just on Jane and all the things you're talking about, like filmmaking, indigenous representation on screen. Yeah, very pivotal. And and she, you know, passed away, what, two years ago? And so, so, yeah. it, so that was a really good thing for me to see. And then seeing some of the names of people I know who were involved in the movie and th those kind of things, like Guy Narcomi, who was doing the translation and Nakona and uh, Brett Learned and all those cats, you know, so... So it's just like this thing. And that's what's going on for, with me with all this native films, native TV shows. It's like, you know, you know, Indians are one degree of separation. So you're seeing all these people you actually know, you've worked with, you've like made films with and all these kind of things. You're like, oh, shit, this is this is the time to be alive, you know? And so it just it's just the celebration. And, th and that's the thing, too, like, you know, how Angela was saying, you know, you know, we went to our uh, res porn films and now we're in this like celebration of who we are point of, of filmmaking and, and I'm excited to see the future like hopefully it doesn't lose that momentum like you know movies seem to do whenever it's Indian stuff <laughs> like it lasts for a few years and then it stops and then we gotta wait another 20 years before something else comes along like I said I, I just got a million different things so I'll just cut it off right there before <laughs> before I just go on yeah I think that that's that's something I appreciate so much about this, you know, like I hate to call it a moment because it's not a moment because we've been telling stories forever, but like, you know, the what we're going through currently where native folks are finally getting our opportunities in the media in like major, you know, major uh, mainstream spotlights and stuff like that is like, yeah, native Hollywood's still real small. We're all like pretty much friends with each other. It's like, um, you know, like it, it really did feel like I was watching the credits of Prey and there were people that there were people in the credits that I didn't even know worked on it that I'm friends with. But I was just like, oh, damn, that's like cool that they're in it. I mean, like the um, Kaz Kip um, is a really amazing producer and she worked on the um, and, um, you know, it's just like to see like we were in like an ABC Disney native entertainment industry program together in like 2011 so to see you know her go from that to like having a really cool you know uh like just like a mark of hers working on this section of this amazing film it's just like it's cool how like we're i feel like we're all celebrating each other's victories you know well and that, that's what i keep seeing in interviews is you know especially with sterling and sierra that 
they're kicking the door open, but they're, then they're going to hold it open. Yeah. They're very intentionally bringing up the next generation of native storytellers and giving them the opportunities that they had to fight for, which I think is just beautiful. Well, I loved it. Okay, I'll go next. <laughs> I will go on record saying I hate jump scares. I remember seeing the original Predator movie a long time ago and it you know scared the crap out of me. So... I knew going into this that it was going to scare the crap out of me. So I had the, one of the programmers for Native Crossroads Film Festival on one side and one of the programmers for Native Crossroads and Dead Center on the other side of me. I just remember sitting there with my eyes closed and both of them jumping. And I was like, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy how many times I've, I don't, every time I watch it, it's like that snake gets me every time. <laughs> You and, you and Carl, we're both just like, oh, oh yeah, that's such a beautiful shot. I mean, we were like, oh, that's so badass. We... <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, really amazing. And you know, it's like symbolic, like that's really important symbolically because like the snake is a really important part of like Comanche, like that's like a symbol of us. And the fact that it was the snake at that point was really important to me. I was like, oh, this is about us. And and then it gets strikes, and then of course, like it gets worse. Like the stakes get higher. That like he's going to eliminate like Comanches possibly. Um, but that was really awesome. Like the effects were awesome. Like the fact that like the camera moves behind like the invisible uh, predator foot, and it's like distorted. But also like like the ant like crawls on it. Um, oh, the ant was you know? so cool. I it took me a minute to figure out what was happening, and I was mm -hmm. like, "Oh, this is cool." Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's amazing. Like where he puts the camera in relation to the visual effects is really awesome. Like that, there's that moment. There's also like uh, when the camera is down low in the water when she's like trying to escape from the bear, and oh, we're like yes. go down in the water with her. That's cool by itself. And, like seeing her do the stunt in the water, but then like mm -hmm. the bear's foot comes in. And that's visual effects, and I like believed it. It's like the, I mean, there's no bear on set. There was nothing on set, so like the animation of the water, and then the sort of like up and down, the sort of like Private Ryan kind of like up and down in the water. Uh, really amazing moment. Yeah. Yeah. The, the I mean, cinematography is that a word? Cinematography. Cine <laughs> cinematography. 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 It was. <clears throat> gorgeous i mean i you know we brought it up at the end of the q a as to why this what didn't didn't go into wide release mm -hmm. just because it is so pretty on the big screen mm -hmm. yeah it's so pretty yeah it's so beautiful like the size of everything the scale of it um, even the sound like that i felt like that's a big thing that will be missing if you watch it on a smaller screen is just sort of like the surrounding of the sound that happens but the soundtrack but then like when she's in the forest at certain moments or we can hear them in the background, like when she's left alone at night and like the, the other guys are walking back to the camp mm -hmm. um, or Just like the, the water through the grass, the wind through the grass. Yeah, it was like, lovely. Amazing. Yeah, that was an amazing moment to me, like where she's like seeing the bear and then the wind whips by and she like mm -hmm. knows she's got to do something because it, it, it can smell her now and you can see it on her face. Great moment of performance. And it's like this is um completely in contrast to like that article that we read where it's like the guy's very dismissive about like hunting a bear upwind or whatever but um that whole moment felt real it felt like she knew that the bear was going to smell her she had to deal with it she had to go down and deal but, with it because it's gonna 
Yeah, because she reacts real fast mm -hmm. when she sees it, and mm -hmm. she starts getting her uh, bow mm -hmm. and things out because mm -hmm. she knew what that bear was doing. Yeah, so to me, the not having a theatrical release, I'm sure Disney's kicking themselves because the week that it was released on Hulu was a good week to release a film because all they would be up against was that uh, bullet train movie, which is doing mediocre. Yeah, and so I think it would, and with. You know, you have a built-in audience already with Predator. Mm -hmm. You have a built-in audience with native viewers and people who are just sci-fi geeks. I think, you know, you had these, you know, the quadrants that you're hitting every single one with it. And I think they just kind of like, they really stumbled with that. And and I, I wish, like, that's why I was like kicking myself. I wish I saw it in the theater. Like, even that scene, you know, the, 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 the scene where she whistles. I mean, I wonder I, who knows what that was like with the with the theater sound, and, because when you see it on a screen and, and sunrise, tell us what the whistle means when we whistle at night. Yeah, I mean, whistling at night is not good. You're calling stuff, man. Like she knows that it's gonna come when she's whistling. Like that's something that could be easily dismissed by some person. Is like why she's whistling and she's just gonna attract it. But yeah, like big taboo. You don't want stuff like that coming. Moopeats coming. You're gonna die, man. That's that's not good. But that's amazing. And that I think that's Jane's influence specifically. Like she asked for that whistle to happen at that particular moment. She's like, "This is what's gonna happen." She knows she's got control at this particular circumstance by whistling only, so she can call it. It'll come, and he doesn't know that that's gonna happen. That's really amazing. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I think in an interview, that's what they said was like, well, "There needs to be something extra to do that." And they didn't tell Amber Mid Thunder until the day of the shoot. And she was like, what? I'm not going to whistle at night. That's hilarious. The other thing is about Amber Mid Thunder. I mean, you know, like I've known her since she was like knee high to a grasshopper. And her family, you know, are, are friends of mine. And I've seen her grow up on screen and also with them. And, and I was just so like, just ecstatic again, like seeing like, not just someone you care about being on screen, doing such a great movie, but she also did a great performance. I thought, I thought her performance was like stellar and she really held it up. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. E even in like the, uh, the Comanche language track, I thought she did a really great job. Yeah. But like the stunt work that she's doing, like both stunt work and like actual performance, like that's relying on just performing the lines. Um, yeah, really awesome. Yeah, it, I, I felt like she was so overlooked in a lot of the recent works that she's been in, like that Ice Truckers film. Yeah, I was yeah, so excited. Yeah, I was so excited that they like it was like, where did she go? They just like misused her. Um, yeah, and and they said she didn't even get top credit, but she should have been like second credits and Liam Neeson on that movie. Yeah, no kidding, man. Yeah, but now, you know, like she, you know, everybody keeps talking about her being the next Arnold, which is great. Like, that's a great place to be, you know, mm. talk about resilience when we got, yeah. And she's also a filmmaker. She's a director. So I, I hope that she gets to do like a direct a film in the future. I mean, that's been something that's been so cool to see is like all these, all the stars of the original Predator tweeting about how much they love Amber Mid-Thunder. Like seeing Jesse Ventura tweeting like, Amber Mid-Thunder, you rock. Welcome to the Predator family is just cool. Well, they did screen it at Comic-Con, they said at the screen, at the Oklahoma City screening. So apparently it was a big hit at Comic-Con, which you would think that that would be 
a very tough crowd to please. Yeah. But they said they got a standing ovation. mm -hmm. Yeah. I keep seeing, you know, people list, you know, just on Letterboxd or Twitter or IMDb uh, or Instagram that it's like the best predator. It's not just like a good predator. You know, it's like somehow like the film is hitting on all these levels. And we were talking about some great things here, but it's amazing that it's working for fans. Like, especially in today's world where like fans seem to control cinema. It's miraculous that like all of this stuff is working on all of these levels. And I will say just as a predator fan going into the film, like it was awesome to see what the predator looked like, the weaponry of the predator, how clever the predator was with what they were utilizing. Um, But then also like these callbacks, like the gun, that Tully mentioned, but like there are moments in the film where like the predator does things or like um, when uh, Dakota is bringing the head back in, it's like decapitated, like the cat's hat head is decapitated and he's walking back to camp to, you know, communicate what's been happening and the cat dangers over um, that moment replicates a moment also in predator two with Ruben Blades who comes in and there's like a, there's a decapitation of a of an individual that resulted because of the predator, and just that moment, like the composition replicates it, and it was like great fan service to me. It was like this is really amazing. Like he paid attention to what predator fans probably want, and on top of that, I learned something about how the predator will replicate what he's learned here from the Comanches in 1997 when Predator Two happens. So I felt like there was interesting sort of like attention to the the series, I guess. Uh, that was really engaging for me. It's so miraculous. And this should this should work as an example of the studios that like it doesn't we, we don't need content about us in res porn. Right? It feels like that's probably what they're thinking now. In fact, I mean, like there is that film that's that played it can. Right. That's essentially it seems like it's res porn. It's like um, it's it was directed by Riley Keough. She was like one of two directors that directed this um, yeah. like semi like neorealist film. I'm trying to look for the title War Pony. It hasn't been released yet. Oh, yeah. Right. But it's like, you know, looking at uh, Lakota men growing up and the reservation and the way that critics describe it. It's like, you know, replicating all the things that we're talking about. It's like regressing back to this sort of like impoverished porn it's like we have to feel sad and you know it's like just going to be you know intertribal fighting and um you know teens that are never going to make it off the reservation despite like their promise you know like um those things are happening and those are things that are important for people to know but also like we're talking about this like genre resilience you know and it just feels like that's a weird thing to be praising especially when it's like also two like non-indigenous filmmakers one a celebrity to some degree and i feel very conflicted about that and then i'm sure i'm gonna watch and think it's beautiful and then have that struggle again that we talked about like oh what do i have to like do i have to sit through this well as a 10 year old girl who saw star wars for the first time and princess leia inspired me i fervently hope that all these young native ladies are going to watch this and feel that same fire that they can do anything they can get out there and decapitate a predator and keep her hair down the whole time i mean come on i put my hair back to fold laundry i put my hair back in 90 degree weather yeah 
I mean, the fact that her hair um, even was down the whole time. Well, well I mean, the, the weather also was probably a little bit cooler where she was, you know. <laughs> to be fair. Yeah. Um, I, I'm just going to shout out my, this reminds me of just my favorite meme that I've seen from Prey, which is a photo that's just like, at the next Comanche powwow, and it says like, <laughs> and it says like, Indian tacos with predator meat. And I'm just like, <laughs> hell yeah like that that makes that's like that's funny but also like how like badass and empowering that i get to be like hell yeah the comanche better fucking sell predator meat indian tacos forever like yeah i'd spend 20 bucks on like an indian taco with like green food coloring in it that was promoted as being meat from the predator they killed like if that's I, not an Indian market this year, I'd be mad. <laughs> I totally that's totally gonna happen at Comanche Homecoming. That's totally gonna happen. <laughs> Comanche okay, when is, fair... when is Comanche Homecoming? You need to take pics. Oh, well, yeah. I mean it'll be next July, but um oh. <laughs> Imagination Fair will be this fall, so I you know, maybe they'll maybe they'll get a head start and do it. <laughs> and you guys have to report back from from Indian market. Let us know if there's any predator meat, meat pies or Oh yeah. Oh, I'm That's gonna awesome. be looking. I will. I will yeah. spend way. I'll spend over the price of a normal meat pie <laughs> just if it says predator meat on it with green chilies. <laughs> yeah, so green chilies like, oozing out the side, right? Hell yeah. So sunrise. You know they did. You know use the term uh, moopeeps. Right, Am I saying it correct? Moopeeps. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So the first time I heard that they were, it was with the. Claire Kupepasaw's movie that she did with the We Shall Remain, that little mm -hmm. short film she did for Real mm -hmm. Natives. Mm -hmm. And in that version, it was in reference to Bigfoot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But in the actual translation, it, what, what, what does it mean in the actual translation? I mean, it's like, you know, it's a monster. It's something that is, you kind of don't know what it is. It's going to eat you. It's going to, you know going to hurt it is often referred to in relation to bigfoot um, i think those are probably the most common associations that we have with it uh, but i think it's been utilized to describe all sorts of monsters you know i mean mostly like the description does not seem to surround uh, a lot of talking about it right you don't want to talk about it right because it's gonna come oh shit now you take right? on me <laughs> i know <laughs> i know now it's like dark outside just don't whistle <laughs> yeah we're talking about eating too. <laughs> yeah, but no. Uh, yeah, I thought that was that was an amazing moment just to hear that word. You know, it's rare. I rarely hear it, and the fact that it made sense in the film, it had a large foot. You know, it is a monster. It could very likely take the children. It was at night, and um, and there was this thing about the moment where she like looks up at the tree, and we can't quite determine what we're looking at but we know that there's possibly like a skeleton up there and i think it's like the remains of i'm not sure what maybe the wolf or something i don't know what it is or maybe it's a baby cat i don't know but there's a moment where we i think in the language of the predator we know like when characters like look up at a tree that like the predator could be in the tree and we don't hear it but there's just sort of like the shot is a range where it's like enough space in the frame for it to be there. And there's an interesting moment where she's like interacting with it, like looking at it and sensing it and thinking about it. And that that is a moment that somehow relates to movies for me. I don't know if it's just personal, but it feels like when people talk about it, you, you got to be careful when you confront it. You got to let it do whatever it's going to do and don't spook it because it will 
react. It just felt like a moment that of like really distinct spirituality, like dealing with the spiritual entity, really. And it feels like she's like gaining something from it being there, despite like the possibility of danger. And I feel like that was a really nuanced depiction of this movie. It's not just like going to kill you, which it will, but it's like somehow there's information that's um, guiding her despite the fact that it's a threat. I feel like that's something I learned from stories, you know, that like, yeah, there are things to be scared of. There are things that are dangerous, but it also like, they're really only dangerous if you don't know how to handle and interact with them. It felt like that was like a moment in the film that, where that was happening. I think it was probably accidental, but you know, I mentioned this in my feedback and it's always been there. So and then, like that really resonated with me. So that was awesome. I've got a, I've got actually like, while I've got you on sunrise, I had a specific Comanche question on the film. They're like, I haven't really seen people necessarily talk about it in interviews, but I was wondering if you maybe could like illuminate this. They refer to the Amber Mid Thunder character's rite of passage as Kutamia. Uh, yes. Uh, yeah. And they say that, like, specifically the rite of passage is that you have to hunt something that mm-hmm. could hunt you. Was that in the 1700s or is that a Comanche rite of passage? I mean, that, you know, it's interesting because, like, that has come up in discussion. Kutamia is a, a real phrase. And uh, Kuta is uh, about fight and it's about, uh, you know, my fight, basically, like something that I can fight. And I think that's it probably as far as it goes. I don't know. You know, I'm certainly there's license here to make it fit within the lexicon of the predator. Um, But yeah, like living out on your own really is part of the fight, which is something that she does. She goes out on her own. That's a very Comanche like way of life. Um, and then coming back with something that could have had some effect on her and just living during the period of time alone is the fight, but literalized here also, like if you have to fight, you have to fight. Um, but yeah, I don't know about that part in specific, like something that has to be able to fight you back. Um, that's that, yeah. Thanks for eliminating that. That's something that like, that's kind of what I figured is that it was sort of a, like, this is just a rite of passage as opposed mm-hmm. to like this specific thing was exactly how it was worded, you know, mm-hmm. in the 1700s. Mm-hmm. But um, I mean, that that is just something that I like, I feel like rites of passage are, you know, like, like, like my tribe, we have a lot of like rites of passage, you know, like, like vision quests and stuff like that. And I think like, I think it's so cool that that was used as the justification for why the Amber Mid Thunder character had to murder a predator. <laughs> and it's something that's like so baked into, it's like, it's just like so native. It's just like such an indigenous justification for this character's journey that I've never really seen in movies before, you know, major motion pictures before. And to see that used as, yeah, the justification for why, like she decides my rite of passage is I have to kill this effing predator <laughs> right. is, just, is just cool. It's just rad. It's just cool as hell, you know? Yeah, uh, what a way to come of age, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what What do you do next? <laughs> you know, <laughs> who else is going to go next? <laughs> well, I think she's got to kill a xenomorph next. I think that's what I think. <laughs> I mean, I look, I really want, I want, I mean, just like, yeah, flat out. I want her to be a prey to where her and a bunch of predators team up to fight xenomorphs. That would be dope. <laughs> I didn't even think about aliens. So that's even better. Alien versus predator on Comanche Nation land. And what, you know, my theory is that like, at the end, this predator is going to realize how great warriors the Comanche are. And so that's when the, they have a, a weapons exchange. The Comanches give them that gun and they, in the, in the uh, 
Predator gives them some kind of weapon. And so that's how that gun ends up in Predator 2. Although I think you're missing a key element here. I feel like it's like the Comanches uh, gain a relationship with the Predators, but I feel like it's like the Kiowa that develop a relationship with the aliens. Uh, oh, shit! <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a big all-out war, man. Brawl, boy, that'd be a big brawl. <laughs> that'd be kind of crazy. Uh, would that uh, be acceptable? I don't know, but it'd be awesome. <laughs> what uh, what I want to see is, I want to see in the next movie, you know, we've, we've established in Predator 2 that, uh, you know, if you kill a predator, the other predators, you know, respect you in some way. And um, so I want, like, the all the predators to visit the Comanche Nation and to team up with Amber Mid-Thunder, and then they just team up and fight colonialism. <laughs> so it's like, I want a scene where, like, Andrew Jackson's about to sign the Indian Removal Act, and then the three dots appear on the paper. <laughs> yes. And then he yeah. just gets obliterated by a predator spear. All of a sudden, like, it becomes hell a yeah. movie. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, hell yeah. It's like, hell yeah. Predator's <laughs> officially, yeah, Predator's officially an uncle. Hell Yeah. <laughs> We make that awesome. happen. Yeah, that's awesome. I'd pay twenty bucks to see that. I mean, I do like the idea of like the historical, like how we can put predator in all these different historical places, like have them fight with ninjas and having them fight with like maybe join the code talkers to fight, you know, during the war, you know, all these kind of things that could happen. I, it's just there's like it's just open to do everything now. Yeah, I think that happens in some of the comics. I know that there's one with like samurai. I think. Yeah, which is I think I guess that's what's alluded to in the third Predators, right? Because there's like that standoff with like samurai swords, but nobody oh, yeah. likes that one. Loving all the fanfic, loving all the theories. Thank you so much, Joey, for joining us. This has been a great conversation. And oh, yeah. thanks for having we, me. This was so fun. We wish you well on all of your future endeavors. Looking forward to Spirit Rangers. And hopefully uh, everything be successful with your short film at Indian Market and everything. Candace will be there to give you all the applause you need anytime man anytime you want to come in and talk about anything else just holler at us you know oh yeah i'm down yeah if you want to chat up spirit ranger after it drops you do you have a date yet when it will drop so uh we uh the we're, we're saying fall 2022 so we, we we haven't announced the exact release date yet we've got a couple of dates we're kind of circulating but fall fall 2022 for sure Cool. So, coming so soon. Next, next, yeah, coming soon. Next couple months, you'll be able to watch Spirit Rangers. I guarantee it. Well, again, thank you, and thank you, Sunrise, for joining us. We appreciate all of your insights and into the Predator world. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was fun. And thanks to my co-host Talian Candace. And remember, don't just keep it real. Keep it real, Indigenous. I got a little.